So this morning we're going to be looking at Job um, chapter 2 and 3, but I'm going to read chapter 3 to us. Um, Chapter 2 I know is pretty familiar, chapter 3 not as familiar, but just as important, and this is God's word. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, May the day of my birth perish, and the night it was said, A boy is born. That day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine upon it. May darkness and deep shadow claim it once more. May a a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm its light. That night may thick darkness seize it. May it not be included among the days of the year, nor be entered in any of the months. May that night be barren. May no shout of joy be heard in it. May those who curse days curse that day, those who are ready to rouse Leviathan. May its morning stars become dark. May it wait for daylight in vain and not see the first rays of dawn. For it did not shut the doors of the womb on me, to hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not perish at birth, and die as I came from the womb? Why were there knees to receive me, and breasts that I might be nursed? For now I would be lying in peace. I would be asleep, and at rest with kings and counsellors of the earth, who built for themselves places now lying in ruins, with rulers who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not hidden in the ground like a stillborn child, like an infant who never saw the light of day? There the wicked cease from turmoil, And there the weary are at rest. Captives also enjoy their ease. They no longer hear the slave drivers shout. The small and the great are there. And the slave is freed from his master. Why is light given to those in misery? And life to the bitter of soul. To those who long for death that does not come, who search for it more than for hidden treasure, who are filled with gladness and rejoice when they reach the grave. Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For sighing comes to me instead of food. My groans pour out like water. What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. Let's pray. Lord, what a sombre word it is that you've given to us this morning. 
And we acknowledge, Lord, that this is sometimes how we ourselves feel. Even people of faith that have their hope in you, that know you as their loving Redeemer. Lord, we pray that you would do that supernatural work of your Holy Spirit this morning, that you would open our eyes and that we would see wonderful things in your word. Lord, convict us of those truths that you want us to hear. Encourage us, sustain us, especially for those amongst us this morning who are in the midst of a trial and who say with Job, Amen. Lord, we pray that you would fill us all with your Holy Spirit. Lift our eyes to you, the King of glory, that we might have hope. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've ever watched the original version of the movie, The Wizard of Oz, then you'll know that it starts in black and white and then turns dramatically all of a sudden into beautiful technicolor when Dorothy enters into the land of Oz. Then at the end of the movie, when Dorothy returns to Kansas, the movie returns to black and white again. The Wizard of Oz was one of the first movies, not the first, but one of the first, to use the three-step colour technique called Technicolor to process the film. It was cutting-edge technology for its day, all the way back, get this right, you're going to feel really old now, 1939 was when The Wizard of Oz was first released. It was also one of the things which made the movie so famous and turned it into such a classic. The effect of using black and white and then colour was brilliant because it showed the contrast between the real world and the make-believe fantasy world that Dorothy enters into. The opening and closing scenes provide bookends, if you will, and focus your attention on the main part of the movie. And in a similar kind of way, the book of Job does this as well. Although, for many of us, it's in reverse. You see, everybody is familiar with the opening and closing chapters of the book of Job. Uh, it's like they are the parts that are in technicolour. But the middle section, well, which is actually the longest and most important part of the book, for many people, that's in grey or black and white, and it's not as memorable. If we're being completely honest, the middle part is boring in comparison to what comes before and after. But that's a real shame because it's the middle section of the book which is where our focus really should be. If I could give you an, um, another analogy, it's a bit like watching test match cricket. I realise that not everybody likes cricket. Some people think that it's a complete waste of time. But cricket is like life. Sometimes exciting and dramatic things happen. Wickets fall or a batsman scores a boundary or runs. But a lot of life, just like cricket, is a laborious grind and it's all about surviving. It's all about not getting out. What's more, 
you need to learn in cricket, just like you need to learn in life, that you don't hit every ball. You need to be able to discern which ball you're going to defend, which one you're going to hit, and just as importantly, which ball you are going to let go. And just like in a cricket match, sometimes life can change really, really quickly. Your life can collapse just as quickly, as we've seen this summer, as the South African middle order. Could you imagine, though, if you only turned up for the coin toss and the national anthem at the beginning of the game and then only came back at the end of the game for the result? My son-in-law is just like this. He hates cricket. He's happy to watch the national anthem, happy to find out the result, but the rest of summer holidays while we are sitting there, the Powell family watching cricket, he's reading a book. The problem is, is that he's missed out on what the game is really all about. He's missed out on all the tension, all the effort, all the focus. And in a similar kind of way, I think we're tempted to do the same thing with the book of Job. We're very, very familiar with the opening chapters, chapters 1 and 2, and we all know what happens at the end, but the middle section of Job is a bit of a mystery. For instance... Could you name, without looking, Job's three friends? Or, if you could, what would you say is unique about what each one of their different perspectives is? Or, what's the name of the fourth mysterious individual who appears suddenly before the Lord himself speaks to Job? And even more importantly, what is his purpose in being there. The book of Job is a, book, is a big book and while it might seem long and a bit slow at times, there's a lot going on. You see, chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Job contain four different responses to the events of chapter 1. The first is from Satan, the second is from Job's wife, the third is from Job's friends and the fourth is from Job himself. So let's turn then and consider the first response and that is the one from Satan. If you still have your Bibles open then please turn to Job chapter 2. The devil says to the Lord in verse 4, skin for skin a man will give all he has for his own life. It's a bit of a cryptic statement and it's a little difficult to be certain as to what it really means. Some think it's referring about to what is just about to occur. Um, as in, if Satan is allowed to strike Job's own flesh, then he will, metaphorically speaking, lash out and strike God's flesh too. Skin for skin. But while that's possible, I think it might actually be referring to what has just happened. And that is Satan is making light of what, he has just, of what he has just made Job suffer by saying that all of the events of chapter 1 were only skin deep. You've only let me take away, Satan is saying, surface things like possessions and riches 
and yes, even children and family. What Satan is asking for next, though, is for Job's suffering to go deeper, that he might be allowed to strike Job the man himself. Skin for skin, a man will give all he has. Notice the link between verses 4 and 5, which says, Skin for skin, a man will give all he has for his own life, but stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. You see the contrast? By the way, notice how Satan is asking that God himself strikes Job to stretch out your hand. Satan is trying to implicate the Lord into acting maliciously himself against his servant. But as we read in James chapter 1 in the New Testament, not only can God not be tempted by evil, but neither does he tempt anyone. The Lord himself can be in no way responsible for our sin. Even in suggesting to the devil that he consider his servant Job, and this is the careful point to consider, that does not make God the author of evil. The Lord's hands in all of this are completely clean. Now, this won't become completely clear until the end of the book, but the Lord is achieving a purpose here that not even Satan himself is aware of. There is more going on here than meets the eye. And that means that we, even we, the reader, has to be very, very careful of jumping to hasty conclusions. You see, Satan afflicts Job with painful sores from the sole of his foot to the top of his head. And there is no escape from his suffering, his humiliation and his pain. All he can do is sit amongst the ashes scrape his sores so as to try and bring about some kind of relief. But while Satan thinks that he is going to succeed in, do, in destroying Job's faith, God has a plan to refine Job's character through the fires of affliction. To, through his humiliation, glorify his name and mould his servant Job even further into his image and his likeness. As Joseph says to his brothers in Genesis chapter 50, after they had sold him into slavery, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Now, just precisely what that good looks like, we'll have to be patient and wait and see. But what we have to grasp here is that even Satan's response is fulfilling the sovereign purpose of our loving Heavenly Father. All of which brings us to the response of Job's wife. The one person who hasn't been taken from him. And it's probably because Satan knew he could do more harm by keeping Job's wife alive than taking her from him. Augustine, the great church father, refers to Job's wife as the devil's assistant. Calvin simply refers to her 
that is Job's wife, as Satan's tool. And the reason why they say that is because she says to Job this in verse 9. Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. It's the one thing Job has not only strenuously avoided doing himself, but he has also tried to prevent his children from doing as well. He's actually, remember back in chapter 1, offering sacrifices just in case they may have cursed God in their heart. Brothers and sisters in Christ, it is an incredibly serious thing to speak against the Lord. I know many people think that it doesn't matter, that God's big enough to handle our anger, no matter how bitterly or ungodly it's expressed. But Psalm 4, verse 4, if you're taking notes, just jot down this passage because it's a good rebuke. Psalm 4, verse 4 is especially apt. It says, In your anger, do not sin. When you are on your beds, search your hearts, And be silent. You see, for the believer, cursing God is never the right thing to do. And it will only make matters worse. I knew a Christian sister once who was struck down with a very, very severe illness, which meant that for a time she literally couldn't walk. Eventually she was healed and today she's fully recovered. But at the time she was incredibly bitter. And she told me um, publicly in in a group, which she brought us all together to share, that she had deliberately cursed God and she repeated them with all kinds of profanities which I would never repeat. Various forms of Christian psychology encouraged her that doing so would be helpful. But my own observation is that it definitely was not. This particular woman spent years absorbed with her own sense of loss and selfishly demanding from God and those around her of what she assumed that she was entitled to. She had given in to the temptation of Job's wife. But God in his mercy didn't take her life away. In the process, she had all but practically dethroned God and put herself in his place. And the results were, well, as you can imagine, disastrous. We have to learn, as Job graciously says to his wife, to accept good from the Lord as well as trouble. Or literally in Hebrew, evil. We have to learn to accept both. John Dixon, in his excellent little book called If I Were God, I'd End All the Pain, 
tells the story of an aircraft accident that happened on Tuesday, October 12, 1976. The front page of the Evening News of India wrote this. All 89 passengers and six crew members were killed when an Indian Airlines um, plane bound for Madras crashed within minutes of takeoff at Santa Cruz Airport. The plane was only some three minutes airborne when its pilot noticed a fire in one of the engines. He was reported to have told air traffic control of the fire and said, I am coming back. Eyewitnesses, though, including friends and relatives who had come to see the passengers off, saw the plane burning in the night sky like a red ball before it crashed. The passengers had no chance. The reason why John Dixon relates all of this is because his own father was on that plane. If you haven't read the book, then I'd really recommend it to you. It's quite short. It's very easy to read. But it's a great presentation as to why we can trust God even when we don't know why sickness or tragedy occurs. Real faith is not about knowing why our suffering is occurring. It's about trusting who God is despite it. That he is holy and righteous and good even when we experience trouble and evil in this world. Angie and I just had a friend come from the mainland. I was just visiting us for a couple of days and we were talking about a, a mutual friend of ours that almost killed himself in a motorbike accident doing a rally across South, uh, South Australia. And I said to my friend, God is good. Our, our, friend, our friend survived miraculously. And he said, is God good? And I said, yeah, Russell, he's good all the time. And he looked at me and he goes, he is, Mark. You know, just a couple of weeks ago, I thought I had a terminal illness and I was going to die. God is good all the time. Even when he takes us home. The third response then is that of Job's three friends. Job is so disfigured from the sicknesses that the Satan has inflicted on him that the passage says his friends can't even recognize him. And significantly, they sit around for a period of seven days, which was the customary time in the ancient Near Eastern world for mourning, which means it's as though to them, Job has already died. They are attending his funeral with an open casket. In his commentary on the book of Job, um, which I hope... I'll um, send out the link this week. I hope many of you will purchase this. It's by Christopher Ash. He says this. It's as if they call for the hearse and sit by Job with the coffin open and ready for him. There is no point talking to a corpse. One just weeps by it. To them, Job is no longer a living person. He then goes on to say, their silence may not be so much as the silence of sympathy although it may have begun as such, but a silence of bankruptcy. They say nothing 
because they have nothing to say that will bring him comfort. It seems for them too late for that. What a terrific but horrific insight. Because we assume, in keeping with what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 10, that like a good friend should, we mourn with those who mourn. We weep with those who weep. But that's not what Job's friends are doing right now. They've given up all hope. They're weeping because their friend is dying before their eyes. They've given up any chance, any hope of recovery. They're mourning for Job as one who already has one foot in the grave and their grief is how could he have fallen into such a state as this? That is, as we'll soon see, they're sitting there not with compassion but condemnation and judgment. If they really wanted to comfort him, and here's the other thing I think we missed today, friends, they should have spoken up. Not that we should be quick to, you know, pontificate or theologize as to the reasons why something like this happened, because we don't know. But as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we are to comfort those who grieve, who mourn. We are to encourage one another. Because as Christians, we mourn. But the difference is, is that we don't mourn without hope. Because we know of Jesus' death and his resurrection, we know that the grave will not have the final word. We know that death will not have the victory. But we still mourn. When Jesus came to Lazarus' tomb, he wept. In fact, he wept so bitterly that the Greek word for it is that he was filled with anger at this great intrusion of death into our world. I know we sometimes say that death is natural, but for the Christian, theologically speaking, strictly, that's a cop-out. It's not natural. It's the great intruder into God's creation. Yes, it's consistent. Yes, it's the norm now, but it's not natural. It's not how God intended his world to be. And it's exactly why Jesus came. They not only asked, or rather, they not only not asked Job's friends about how he was going, but they should have spoke the promises of the gospel. When my dad died, um, I really valued the number of people who came and spoke to me. It brought an incredible amount of comfort through cards, through conversation. You know, the thing that I found the most difficult, though, was when people were silent. When they stayed away. Or they said nothing at all. Friends, we must not do that. We're people of the living God who has defeated death. We must be there for one another in those times. To not do so is a lack of faith. And that was the mistake of 
the response of Job's three friends, all of which brings us to the fourth and final response, and that's from Job himself in chapter 3. Now, up to this point, if you've been reading your Bible carefully, you'll notice that the word day has come up repeatedly. Chapter 1, Job's children regularly celebrated together a feast on a given day. It's hard to know what that day was. Some think it was a birthday, a celebration day, but regardless, it was a day. Then in chapter 1, verse 6, and in chapter 2, verse 1, Satan appears to the Lord on another day. But in the day of his disaster, Job doesn't curse God as Satan had predicted and his wife had suggested. Instead, what does Job do? He curses the day of his birth. And this act of cursing is not just a way of transitioning from chapter 2 to chapter 3, but this act of cursing is in and of itself a dramatic event. You see, in response to Job's friends or their failure to comfort him, Job not only longs to die, but he wishes that he'd never been born. I don't know about you, but I would have thought that Job would have cursed the day of his disaster. For instance, the day that he lost all of his possessions or all of his children, or maybe even the day that he first became sick. If only things had have gone back or could have returned to how things were when things were good. But he doesn't curse that day. He actually goes even further back. He curses the day that he was conceived. It's as though his whole life had been a complete waste and was filled with regret. Chapter 3 is an incredibly eloquent soliloquy of grief and loss. And significantly, the book now moves from prose to poetry, which is also sadly where a lot of people start to lose interest. Maybe that's because we don't value poetry as much as we should. And instead, we prefer um, the action of narrative. We want to read about what happened rather than how people felt and thought. But this is where the book of Job comes into um, a, a league of its own. It's where It's why people like Thomas Carlyle, the great Victorian essayist, have said that Job is, quote, the grandest book ever written with pen. Because it takes us into the depths of human pain and philosophical questioning. Christopher Ashe, again, perceptively writes that it gives us a wheelchair perspective on suffering rather than an armchair perspective. You see, if you live long enough, it's only a matter of time before something like this happens to you. It's not a matter of if you will suffer, it's a question of when you will suffer. The Welsh poet, some of you would have heard of him, Dylan Thomas, he once wrote a famous poem called, on dying called, Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night. In comparison to Job, it's an extremely short piece with most of the verses ending in this famous refrain. It says, rage, rage against the dying of the light. Tragically, Dylan Thomas himself was only 39 when he died of alcohol poisoning. Somewhat 
pathetically, his last words were apparently this. I've had 18 whiskeys straight. I think that's a record. Not a great thing to brag about. Especially when you're famous for saying that you should rage, rage against the fading of the light. Thomas lived in a way which meant that he was responsible for his own early demise. The content of Job's character and life, though, was the complete opposite. He has done nothing to deserve the suffering he is experiencing. If you take the time to carefully read chapter 3, you'll find that Job not only longs to die, or that he'd never been born, but that he'd ever been even conceived. That whereas the Lord said on the very first day of creation, remember, let there be light, Job wishes for a return to darkness. In fact, in the first 10 verses of chapter 3, the word darkness, light or night are used approximately 10 different times. What's more, in verse 8, Job talks about those who rouse Leviathan to curse days, cursing the day of his birth. Many believe that the, create, the, the creature Leviathan here is itself an allusion to Satan. And the act of rousing Leviathan was a pagan practice of procuring Satan so that you could pronounce curses on certain days. By the way, we'll meet this strange kind of demonic figure, I think, later on in chapter 41. But rather than curse God as the devil had hoped... Job wishes that those who follow Satan would have used his power more effectively than what they actually did. That he'd gone back to the very beginning of his life and even prevented him from coming into existence. But as we know, Satan doesn't have the power to go back in time and change the way that things are. Such is the turmoil and the despair, though, of Job's suffering. Now, I wonder, have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt, even as a Christian, that it would be better to be dead than to be alive? Just because you're a believer doesn't mean that you or I will never go through what the Puritans famously used to refer to as the dark night of the soul. What I just read to you before is Holy Scripture. Inspired, we believe, by the Holy Spirit. Have you ever had times in your life where all hope seems lost and for you there is no light at the end of the tunnel? Where like Job says in verse 20 long, 21, you long for death, but it doesn't come. Your only disappointment is that you're still alive. Where you search for death. I can't believe I'm saying this from a pulpit, right? Is he really saying this? This is what Job says. He searched for death as for hidden treasure. And he was filled with gladness at the prospect of its presence. Where you say with Job, what I feared has come upon me, what I dreaded has happened to me, I have no peace, no quietness, I have no rest, 
but only turmoil. Can you relate to that? Many of us here this morning will know firsthand the psychological turmoil that Job is in. And especially if you're feeling that way right now, then can I try and encourage you to not give up hope? For we have to keep in mind that God has never left Job. Even though everything has been taken away, even though everything in our circumstances or how we feel inside is saying something different, is screaming at us. You see, just take a look at what Job has to say at the end of the chapter, verse 23. He says, Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For sighing comes to me instead of food. My groans pour out like water. Now, if you think back to chapter 1, verse 10, you'll remember that Satan had complained how the Lord was putting a hedge of protection around Job. And here, Job uses exactly the same term to talk about how God has hedged him in with suffering. Ironically, we the readers know that it is Satan who is the cause of Job's suffering and that if it were not for God's hedging, even his life would have been taken away. Praise God for his hedging. It's a good reminder, brothers and sisters, that things are not always as they seem. That we should never depend or rely on how we feel or our circumstances. Your life is not hidden from God. He understands fully what is happening to you. But that doesn't take away from the reality of how perplexing or painful our suffering is. Particularly the psychological anguish involved with physical um, sickness or that associated, can I say, with, with mental health. The question is, will you trust God in the dark? Will you trust him? Will you and I continue to worship him even when we can't understand why? A really good friend of Angie and mine died of cancer when she was in her late 30s. She was a lovely, godly woman, married to a Presbyterian minister. She had four beautiful little girls. I often think about her faith, especially how she faced the prospect of her own coming death. And one day she said to me on the phone, you know, the more I pray, the sicker I get. One of her favourite passages was Isaiah 26 verses 3 to 4. If you're suffering right now, then you might want to jot this down because I think it'll be a real balm for your soul. Isaiah 26 verses 3 and 4. You will keep in perfect peace 
him whose mind is steadfast, because he trusts in you. And then it says, trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord, the Lord is the rock eternal. That's the challenge, isn't it? But we can meet it because, as the Apostle Peter says, our faith is even right now being refined as through fire. Through all kinds of difficulties, through all kinds of trials, there's a purpose. These have come, Peter says, so that our faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honour when the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed. The reason why we can become so confident of this process, though, friends, is because, as Peter says a few verses before, did you notice this? We are being shielded by God's power. That is, Peter says, we are hedged. Hedged in so that the refining process of suffering and that purges all the dross in our life produces the silver, the gold of faith. Such that the image of his likeness is being reflected back to him in our lives. So no matter what you're going through, don't give up because God hasn't given up on you. Like Job, you might be sitting in the ashes, feeling completely alone. I don't say this lightly, but you are right where he has designed for you to be. Remember, the Lord Jesus Christ went through exactly the same kinds of things, but worse. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when he was all alone and not one of his disciples was... The, able to stay awake and pray with him when he was there praying with such earnestness that he, his prayers, his sweat was like drops of blood. When he was arrested, not only did they all flee, but even those closest to him even denied that they knew him. When he was dying on the cross and he could cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus knows what it's like to suffer, to be rejected and to be all alone. So don't give up. Keep trusting in him. For Jesus will see us through. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that you are God. You are so much greater than we could ever imagine you to be. In comparison, Lord, what is man that you are mindful of him? We are but ants compared to you, the great Lord, creator, sustainer of this whole entire universe. Lord, even now, with sympathy and compassion, you know where each one of us is at. And we pray that you would strengthen us and you would sustain us for the days ahead. Whether they are contained with good things or evil things, we know that you are good. 
that you are sovereign and that you are good all the time. Oh, Lord, this passage humbles us deeply because we can so, re- we can so relate to what Job is going th- had, had gone through. Lord, fill us with your spirit. Strengthen our trust in you that even though there is utter darkness around us, we will hold on to you. Thank you, Lord, for hearing our prayers. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.